You're listening to Tom Fitton's weekly update here on JW Talknet. Hi, Judicial Watch President Tom Fitton here with our weekly update here on social media. Thanks for joining us. A lot going on this week. We have a new hot transcript in from a federal court hearing on the Clinton email scandal. Federal court judge slammed the government in that case, and I'll, I'll talk about that with you. Plus the blowback and the the outrage over the Comey IG report continues. I, I have more detail on the coup that was exposed there and what it portends for future prosecutions of the coup cabal. Plus, Judicial Watch filed a new lawsuit in Virginia about sexual assault allegations against Lieutenant Governor. I'll talk to you about that craziness as well. So there's a lot to talk about. And as you may know, and those of you who don't know, I'll bring you up to date. Judicial Watch uncovered the Clinton email scandal. We had asked for Benghazi documents, uh, her involvement in the Benghazi talking points scandal where they were lying to the American people during the last year of the Obama, excuse me, during in 2012 about the attack on our Benghazi uh, special mission compound. They used these fraudulent talking points, suggesting it was a video as opposed to the terrorist attack that it was, all to protect President Obama's reelection chances. Hillary Clinton and the State Department happily uh, uh, helped with that cover-up. Judicial Watch basically has gotten every document there is to get on Benghazi, and we exposed that cover-up, including documents showing the White House was behind the video lie on Benghazi. All of that led to the creation of the Benghazi Select Committee. But we noticed, we noticed in these documents that we were getting, there were no Clinton emails. So just to be safe, we asked again. And push came to shove, and we were insistent on figuring out where those Clinton emails were. And the Justice Department, or the State Department, through the Justice Department, finally admitted to us in February of 2015 that they gave us all the emails, all the documents, other than the things they weren't giving us. And it turned out that was the Clinton email system. So uh, in the meantime, they had tried to shut our case down without telling us about the Clinton emails that they had sitting over there at the State Department by the time of the settlement discussions in this, so in this litigation. So uh, it was this case that exposed the Clinton emails. And of course, the rest is history. Hillary Clinton isn't president because of her email cover-up and what she was covering up in those emails. Now, uh, fast forward to late last year, the court in the case that handles that, uh, that Benghazi FOIA lawsuit that uncovered the Clinton emails, he granted us discovery because he wanted to know whether Hillary Clinton used, the free, uh, used her email system to avoid disclosure of her materials under the Freedom of Information Act. Uh, whether, as I said, the courts were being gamed, whether this court specifically was being gamed in, um, uh, in, in them trying to shut the case down before telling us about the emails. And thirdly, he wants to know whether or not the, uh, there are emails to be found. So he grant us dis granted us discovery, and we deposed about 11 or 12 witnesses. We received new documents and new information never before disclosed, or at least discussed publicly. And uh, we found information that raised new questions about the Clinton email cover-up. Now, this is Judicial Watch doing this. Under court-supervised discovery, He's, he granted us the specific witnesses. 
we had a top um, former oh, State Department official come in and say, look, everyone knew there was an issue here. We had a security official for the State Department admit that Hillary Clinton was warned at least twice on her email usage. Uh, there's, a, there's just new information that just came out recently that Mrs. Clinton should have been warned at least six times about her email usage. So all of this led to um, a court hearing, of, I think it's now two weeks ago. I wasn't there, I was on vacation. And uh, during that court hearing, we asked, because we had already set it up with court filings, for some additional discovery. And of course, once again, the Justice Department and the State Department opposed us. They opposed our asking for discovery to begin with back late last year. Uh, the court was pretty upset with the State Department and Justice Department because he thought he had been gamed by them. And uh, so we had the hearing this week, uh, the two weeks ago. Now, he granted us the additional discovery over the objections of the Justice Department and State Department. So I, I just want to repeat this. This Justice Department, this State Department is defending Hillary Clinton in court from having to answer any additional questions. Defending the State Department in court from having to answer any additional questions about the Clinton email scandal. And Benghazi, by the way, because this is also about Benghazi. Justice Department obviously also defending itself from having to answer questions about its role in the potential cover-up here. And uh, so we got everything we asked for. I think there's... Um, let me see what we, let me see what exactly. We are seven new depositions we get to take. Seven additional depositions, three interrogatories. Interrogatories are written questions that someone has to answer or an agency has to answer under oath. Four document requests, very narrow document requests. And Hillary Clinton and her top aide Cheryl Mills have 30 days, which I guess is going to run in a few weeks now, to respond to our request to depose them in person under oath, which means they would come in and our attorneys would question them under oath in person. All of this, of course, they didn't want to happen at the Justice Department. So this is why I get frustrated, folks, because I see the Justice Department defending Hillary Clinton. I see the Justice Department giving James Comey a pass. I see the whole coup cabal uninvestigated largely. I like Attorney General Barr, but it looks to me, as far our day-to-day -day interactions with the Justice Department, as if, I don't know, Janet Reno is running the Justice Department at times. There's no difference. It doesn't mean that Attorney General Barr doesn't agree with us on the issues that we care about, but operationally, the Justice Department hasn't changed one iota in terms of transparency. I mean, going to the mat for Hillary Clinton, despite all the evidence of the sham prior FBI investigation, Justice Department investigation, etc. So I told you the judge was upset. Well, you don't know how, now of course my colleagues are telling me the details. And you know, you're not there, so you can only tell a little bit of what goes on. And so I had a flavor. I, I know I, I, we've been before Judge Lamberth before. And uh, we finally got the court transcript. So I want to tell you about the detail there because the detail uh, shows you just how outrageous the government misconduct has been here and the cover-up has been. Judge Lamberth uh, is furious. During the hearing, 
first of all, he, he's clear he wants us to even do more than we were even asking for initially, because Judge Lamberth on his own specifically raised concerns about the Clinton email cache that was recently uh, discussed in a letter by Charles Grassley, the senator from Iowa, a muckraker himself, and he, quote, wants Judicial Watch to shake the tree on this issue. He wrote, he writes, or he said during the hearing just last week, the Senate, Senate Finance and Homeland Security Committees released documents revealing that Clinton IT aide uh, Paul Combetta copied all but four of the missing emails to Gmail account, to a Gmail account that does not appear to have ever been reconstructed and searched. The court thinks Judicial Watch ought to shake this tree. Lamberth also, also criticized the State Department's handling and production of the Clinton emails in this case. And this is the quote. There is no, there is no FOIA exemption for political expedience, nor is there one for bureaucratic incompetence. At the beginning of the hearing, Lamberth excoriates the Justice Department and the State Department after they wrongfully stated that Judicial Watch could no longer continue their discovery because they said discovery was closed. The discovery wasn't closed. State Department, this is the State Department attorney, Justice Department attorney. It is, of course, Judicial Watch's burden to explain to Your Honor why there has been good cause to reopen discovery now that discovery has been closed in this case. The court. Well, I didn't close discovery, so your premise is wrong. State Department, fair enough, Your Honor, whether you want to call it closed or not, it is still the court. I didn't close it. I said I would have, I would have a status conference after they took their initial discovery, and that's what I'm doing today. I didn't close discovery. State Department, that's right, Your Honor, but it's still judicial watches. The court, so they don't need any good cause. State Department, whether the court. Today, the good cause continues from whether or not state was acting good faith. And I'll tell you, everything they've discovered in this period raises serious questions about what the hell the State Department's doing here. It's a federal court judge exposing the State Department's misconduct as defended by this Justice Department. I tell you what, if I were the President of the United States, I'd call Secretary Pompeo, Attorney General Barr to my office, and I'd say, this is what's going on here has got to stop. You need to cooperate with Judicial Watch rather than obstruct, in a dishonest way, their efforts to get the facts and the court's efforts to get the facts. I don't know if Pompeo and Attorney General Barr know the level of detail what these lawyers are arguing in the State Department's legal positions, but they need to because this is what's happening. On their behalf, they're speaking for them in court. And of course, the court uh, rejected the, uh, uh, as I said, the st their efforts to derail our discovery. And he cited a prior Judicial Watch FOIA case, and this was way back when. I think the case was filed even before I started at Judicial Watch. It exposed how the Commerce Department under Bill and Hillary Clinton, yeah, they were working as president and co-president back then, were selling seats on trade missions abroad in exchange for campaign contributions. And our FOIA case, trying to expose that, was obstructed six ways to Sunday. Documents getting shredded, being taken out of the Commerce Department, all sorts of things happening. And this is the way the court handles 
the government's objections to our FOIA or discovery request here for additional discovery. I take my glasses off exactly when I need them. This is strange. I tell you another thing I didn't like in your brief. I tell you right now up front, you put in your brief the most preposterous thing. I thought in your brief was the very idea. Let me read you the line. Competitive Enterprise Institute was a case of first impression and that some district just, uh, judge brought that and the Court of Appeals reversed it. Now, Competitive Enterprise Institute was a case, I think, during the Obama administration where uh, I, th I think the case is the head of the EPA at the time was doing government business on a, an account outside the agency or they had moved documents. Now, that wasn't a case of first impression at all, says Judge Lamberth. The first impression with me was a case I had involving Ron Brown, who was the Commerce Secretary under Bill Clinton until he was killed, and the travel records of whether or not in the Commerce Department, and it was a Judicial Watch case, whether or not the Commerce Department was selling seats on trade missions. And I had a Deputy Undersecretary of Commerce who took a box of records home, and then they gave me a no records response, and in the course of that I found out he had taken the records home, and they said they had no records. I sent marshals over and they got the box at his house and I ordered them, the marshals, to seize the records. That was the first case. So you're having a judge remind the government that he can send the marshals over to get records when they go missing in a dishonest way here or any other way on a FOIA case. The judge also stated the government had mishandled this case and the discovery information, um, including of former Secretary Clinton's email, so poor, uh, had mishandled this case and uh, the Clinton email issue so poorly that uh, we will have the ability or likely have the ability to prove bad faith, which is important because we could get attorney's fees and other relief, by the way. As, as the judge reminded us in terms of getting the marshals out there to get documents. Judge Lamberth detailed that the State Department spent three months from November 2014 trying to make this case disappear. That's a quote. And that after discovering the State Department's actions and omissions, now we know more now, now we know more, but we have even more questions than answers. So I won't hold it against Judicial Watch for expanding their initial discovery request now. So he granted us the additional discovery. And I want to read you, this is what happens. He's hearing the argument from Judicial Watch, our lawyer, uh, you've probably seen her if you watch our YouTube channel, Ramona Kotka. She was on Chris Farrell's On Watch last week. I interviewed her a few weeks ago as well. I encourage you to watch both interviews. So Ramona was our lead attorney at this, uh, at this hearing. So she gets to make her argument, and then the Justice Department gets up and makes its argument. And then the judge said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to take a break, and I'm going to go off the bench for a bit, and I'm going to come back. And he came back, and he made the following oral order. First, let me clarify the government's misunderstanding. And I'm going to read it to you, because he goes on at some length, but it's important, because A, no one else in the dishonest liberal media that's still trying to protect Hillary Clinton while improperly targeting President Trump or allowing the government to improperly target President Trump, they're not going to tell you about it. You're only going to hear this from me. You're only going to hear it from Judicial Watch. Congress won't do anything about this. 
the media won't do anything about this, and the Justice Department won't do anything about this. But you can get, it's incredible that it's Judicial Watch that is having to still pursue this information. And again, getting new information that the IG, the State Department didn't get, that the FBI didn't get, and or ignored if they did get it. And of course, the Justice Department was involved in the cover-up as well. And it's continuing. And thankfully, we have a federal court judge who is as outraged about this properly so. He doesn't scream about it like I do. But I'm going to read you what he wrote or what he said from the bench. First, let me clarify the government's misunderstanding. We're not reopening discovery here. Discovery never closed. Back in January, I said, quote, the government will, the court will hold a post-discovery hearing to ascertain the adequacy of state searches, to determine if Judicial Watch needs to depose additional discovery, witnesses, including Hillary Clinton or her former chief of staff, Cheryl Mills, and to schedule dispositive motions. And dispositive motions, I believe, I'm warning you, I'm not a lawyer, are the sorts of motions that would end a case once they're filed. So June 19th was a checkpoint, not a finish line. And whether Judicial Watch previously knew about some of the other individuals it now wants to depose is beside the point. They tailored their initial discovery request to the facts and questions then before the court. And I'll tell you, when you read, because this transcript is online, so we'll provide a link to this, I hope we do, uh, and you can find it at our website as well. The Justice Department was attacking us in the court hearing, attacking suggesting we were pursuing this in bad faith. This is the Justice Department attacking Judicial Watch. And the judge is defending us. Now we know more, but we have even more questions than answers, so I don't want, so I won't hold it against Judicial Watch for expanding their initial discovery request now. Remember what got us started down this path in the first place. In late 2014 and early 2015, at least some State Department officials knew Secretary Clinton's emails were missing. They knew Judicial Watch didn't know that. They knew the court didn't know that. But the department pressed forward trying to settle the case. So I authorized discovery into whether these settlement efforts amounted to bad faith. Now the government says, quote, there is simply no factual basis to justify any further discovery on that subject, unquote. But Judicial Watch's most recent submission lays out the following. It appears that in the middle of 2013, State's Office of Information and Program Services launched an inquiry into Clinton's emails practices. That's the agency of the State Department that handles records. It appears that uh, the, in August of 2013, that office directed FOIA respondents to stop issuing, quote, no records located, unquote, responses to FOIA requests for Clinton emails, meaning they knew they had Clinton emails and they couldn't pretend otherwise anymore. It appears that by the summer of 2014, State knew a large volume of Clinton's emails had never been searched, potentially violating FOIA and record management obligations. It turns out State had a standing meeting every Wednesday afternoon during the summer of 2014 to discuss Clinton-related FOIA inquiries. Attendees included Secretary Kerry's chief of staff, 
his deputy chief of staff, the deputy secretary for management and resources, the assistant secretary for legislative affairs, several attorneys, and Patrick Kennedy, the undersecretary for management. That was every Wednesday afternoon. The cover-up was at the top, certainly in the State Department. It appears that in August 2014, State began planning for media investigations into Clinton's emails. Remember, we didn't find out specifically about the Clinton emails until the New York Times first reported it uh, in, I think it was March of 2015, almost about a half a year later. It appears that in November of 2014, State told Judicial Watch it performed a legally adequate search and tried to settle. In fact, I think in my original opinion on authorizing discovery, I noted that State hadn't give, had given dra a draft Vaughn index to Judicial Watch at that time. I don't think I've ever seen that, but I think it was given to, in my opinion, I said it had been given to Judicial Watch. Indeed, State spent the next three months from November 14, 2014 trying to make this case disappear. They kept doing it even after they became into the possession of Clinton's emails. Now, what's a draft Vaughn index? It's a privilege log, essentially. It's a listing of documents and uh, the reasons they're being withheld in whole or part. They're supposed, it's supposed to provide enough information to uh, the requester so that they can decide whether to, uh, to pursue uh, the documents and gives, supposedly to give enough information to the court so that they can look at it and figure out whether the uh, exemptions are valid under law without having to look at the underlying documents. It doesn't always solve that issue, but that's the purpose of it. And in giving us a Vaughn Index, didn't list any of the Clinton emails. The judge is highlighting that here. Judicial Watch wants to follow up with the State Department, with the State Attorney, assigned to this FOIA request to participate in settlement discussions and negotiations. That seems reasonable to me. State wants to ask the department official responsible for overseeing FOIA requests about why he directed his office to stop using, quote, no records located responses to FOIA requests related to Clinton's emails if that, in fact, is what happened. I'm curious, too. They want to ask the current department FOIA overseer more about what went on in those weekly 2014 meetings. I look forward to hearing what he says. They want to ask the Justice Department attorney who led the settlement negotiations to divulge when he learned Clinton's emails were missing. He must answer. Another reason we had this initial discovery was to see a Secretary Clinton intentionally attempted to evade FOIA by using a private email. When Judicial Watch deposed the deputy director who oversaw state's FOIA responses, he recalled an instance when in his office found an email from Clinton's private account and the public affairs team said, remember, you're not supposed to use that email. How can you spin that? I agree with Judicial Watch that it's worth deposing the State Department records officer who personally reviewed archiving procedures with Secretary Clinton and their departing staff to see what they discussed. I also think that Judicial Watch is justified to seek more information about how Secretary Clinton ultimately determined which emails were public records and which were private. Remember, that's how all those emails got destroyed, or so we're being told, because they were, quote, private. That wasn't true. 
The final reason I authorized discovery was, determined, was to determine whether the State Department adequately searched for records responsive to Judicial Watch's FOIA request. Now, the government seeks to duck behind an unpublished D.C. Circuit opinion from 2018 holding the government had already taken every reasonable action under the Federal Records Act to retrieve Clinton's 30,000 missing emails. And no imaginable enforcement action couldn't recover any more. But just last week, the Senate, Senate Finance and Homeland Committee released documents revealing Clinton IT aide Paul Combetta copied all but four of the missing emails to a Gmail account that does not appear to have ever been reconstructed or searched. The court thinks that Judicial Watch ought to shake this tree. And the court agrees with Judicial Watch that it should talk to three never deposed, never before deposed state officials who raised concerns about Clinton's private email use all the way back in 2009. Remember, that's when she started. There is no FOIA exemption for political expedience, nor is there one for bureaucratic incompetence. The government also tries to say this court is no longer or no longer presents that this no longer presents a live controversy. This is wrong. Judicial Watch can still obtain fees if they prove agency bad faith. I'll close with this, the court concludes. When I authorized discovery back in December, I described my goal to rule out egregious government misconduct and vindicate the public's faith in the state and justice departments. That's still my goal today. This isn't a case I relish, but it's the case before me now, and it's a case of the government's making. The court authorizes Judicial Watch to take the additional discovery described in its status report Except for deposing Secretary Clinton and her chief of staff, Cheryl Mills, I will give their attorneys 30 days to file any additional responses, any additional opposition in their depositions, and 10 days thereafter for Judicial Watch to file a reply, and I'll issue a separate ruling on that. Otherwise, the discovery should go forward, and all of it should be completed by December 13th, and a status conference will be held, scheduled on December 19th. So there you have it. So when the liberal media tells you there's nothing more to be found about the Clinton emails, there's no more justice to be done, I just proved that to be the lie of the century. And what's unfortunate about this situation is that it's Judicial Watch once again doing the work, doing the heavy lifting, over the objections of the Justice Department, over the objections of the State Department. And this is just one of the cases on the Clinton emails that we faced outrageous obstruction. We battled the Trump Justice Department and State Department, as the judge noted, on that records case. All the State Department needed to do under the law, we alleged, was send a letter to the Justice Department talking about emails going missing. And they went crazy about that because they knew that might spur an additional criminal investigation. So they went to the FBI and had them write up their reports on how they searched for Clinton emails that there was nothing else to be done. Unfortunately, the court bought it. We also demanded a damage assessment under the law of classified information in Hillary Clinton's email system. Meaning if something go when, when there's reason to believe that 
classified information is on a system, on secure, on unsecure systems or otherwise unsecure, intelligence community is supposed to do a damage assessment, spillage, to make sure that nothing's been ha nothing happened. They didn't do that under Obama. We asked the Trump administration to do that. We were opposed by the deep state like you wouldn't believe. And when the government doesn't want to do something, especially on Hillary Clinton, it's hard to convince the courts otherwise. Like I said, President Trump, I would, I would have an all-hands-on-deck meeting on this. But thankfully, Judicial Watch is doing this work. It's work that's not being done by the Justice Department, the State Department, Congress, or the media. It's little old Judicial Watch, and we're only able to do this with your support. So I want to thank you for that. Now let's move on to the next outrage. So we'll be taking these depositions. Well, hold on. We'll be taking these depositions. Hillary Clinton will be uh, uh, debating Hillary Clinton in court on this, whether she gets deposed or not. It'll be interesting to see if the government files anything. Of course, they opposed questioning her at all. So its Justice Department is uh, protecting Hillary Clinton. They're also protecting James Comey. And we talked about this at some length last week. The IG report came out. Uh, highlighting uh, uh, James Comey's misconduct as it relates to the memos he wrote about alleged conversations he had with President Trump, um, and then uh, and then President-elect Trump first. And and I think it's important to reiterate this issue. And I don't think I got into it sufficiently last week. This this failure to prosecute Comey by the Justice Department is. It, the decision in this matter, in my view, virtually guarantees there will be no prosecutions on the coup targeting President Trump. I hope I'm wrong. This is a guess. But I'm going to tell you why I'm concerned about it. The IG report, if you've read the media, uh, well, to the degree the media has even reported on it, other than our friends at Fox News or OANN or elsewhere, or Judicial Watch, because we are the media too, uh, the, um, the focus has been on his handling of the memos. But the real focus to me, or the important focus, I mean, not that that's unimportant because that was criminal too, is that this report outlines in plain sight the coup cabal, the conspiracy targeting President Trump. So the Justice Department has had in its uh, staring, had, had presented to it already information demonstrating the illicit coup in seditious conspiracy targeting President Trump. Why is it I say this? Because the discussion on page 17 of the report, and I encourage you to go and look at the report, read it yourself, don't believe me, talks about the, uh, James Comey, with the approval of the President of the United States, Barack Obama, going to ambush President-elect Trump with the salacious and unverified dossier with the hopes of getting him to say something that would put him in legal jeopardy. That's the coup. And here are the details. And I think it's worth reading. I think I read a little bit of it uh, to you last week. But it, it shows the coup. It not only shows the coup, but it shows the incredible development that we have as a result of this IG report. It's been confirmed that Comey was more than just 
keeping a secret FBI file on President Trump improperly and then leaking it. He was spying on President Trump. Don't believe me, believe the report. Comey's first one-on-one -on -one meeting with President Trump, with the Trump occurred on January 6, 2017 at Trump Tower as part of a briefing to the president-elect on an intelligence community assessment of Russia efforts to interfere in the 2016 presidential election. The assessment was jointly prepared by the FBI, National Security Agency, and the Central Intelligence Agency with the oversight from the Office of Director of National Intelligence, the Deep State. According to Comey, the plan for the ICA briefing of President-elect Trump had two parts, both of which Comey said he was concerned would be, quote, controversial and difficult conversations. The first part was of the briefing, jointly conducted by the intelligence community directors, that was Brennan and company like that, involved briefing the President-elect on the overall conclusions of the ICA, the assessment. The second part of the briefing concerned notifying the President-elect of, quote, salacious and unverified information about Trump's alleged conduct in Moscow several years later. Prior to the January 6, 2017 briefing, the FBI learned that several media outlets also had this information and was intending, were intending to publish it. Multiple witnesses told the OIG that the intelligence community directors agreed that Trump must be briefed on this information and that the director of national intelligence decided that the briefing should be done by Comey in a small group or one-on-one. -on -one. No witnesses. Before briefing President-elect Trump, Comey met with senior leaders of the FBI, including his chief of staff, James Rabicki, then FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe, and then FBI General Counsel James Baker, and the supervisors of the FBI's investigation into Russia interference with the 2016 election. That would have been Peter Strzok, by the way. What the IG report doesn't say is that the day or two before that meeting, I think even the day before, he was in the Oval Office, Comey was, with this whole group with President Obama and Vice President Biden all discussing this operation against Trump. Comey wasn't spying for his, own effort, for his own purposes. Obviously, he hated Trump. He was doing it with the approval and direction of the President of the United States, Barack Obama. Comey was Obama's spy. Baker and McCabe told the IYG that they raised and discussed with Comey a number of concerns about Comey meeting alone with President-elect Trump. Baker and McCabe said they agreed that the briefing needed to be one-on-one -on -one so that the Comey could present the, quote, salacious, unquote, information in the most discreet and least embarrassing way. At the same time, we were told they did not want the President-elect to perceive the one-on-one -on -one briefing as an effort to hold information over him, quote, like a Hoover-esque type of plot. Oh, why would he think that? The FBI director showing this garbage dossier to him, saying the Russians got dirt on you and we know about it? What do you think he's going to think? Witnesses interviewed by the OIG also said that they discussed Trump's potential responses to, as, to being told about the, quote, salacious information. Remember, they all knew it wasn't true, or they had no reason to believe it was true, yet they went at him with it anyway. 
including that Trump might make statements about or provide information of value to the pending Russia interference investigation. The FBI counterintelligence investigation known as Crossfire Hurricane concerned whether individuals associated with the Trump campaign during the 2016 presidential election were coordinating with or had been unwillingly co-opted by the Russia government. This is a spy operation. He was a subject or a witness, certainly not a witness in the traditional sense. He was a subject. And they wanted to see what he'd say when given the information. He should have been read his rights. Comey violated the law and the president's constitutional rights in this meeting. And they all knew about it. The coup cabal. It's listed here, folks. I just read you the names. They all knew what was going on. Sure enough, that's why they wrote the memo. Multiple FBI witnesses recalled agreeing ahead of time that Comey should memorialize his meeting with Trump immediately after it occurred. Comey told the OIG that in his view, it was important for FBI executive managers to quote, be uh, to uh, executive managers to be quote, able to share in Comey's recall of the salient details of these conversations unquote. They were conducting an investigation of the president-elect for no good reason. They had nothing. Remember this dossier, it came from Hillary Clinton's campaign, Democratic National Committee, and their cutouts at the State Department, the FBI, DOJ, you name it. Bruce Orr, Nellie Orr. This was the apex of the criminal seditious conspiracy targeting President Trump. Comey also said that an additional concern shared by members of his management team was that if the briefing became, quote, a source of controversy, it would be important to have a clear contemporaneous record because Trump quite, quote, might, um, quote, misrepresent what happened in the encounter, unquote. Why do they think that? Because they were his political opponents. Shows the bias. So they wrote a secret memo on their meeting with the president as part of an investigation of him, President-elect Trump, a few days before he's inaugurated. No criminal scandal, no political corruption scandal like this in American history. And I'm reading it to you. And the Justice Department didn't want to do anything about it. McCabe told the OIG in his view it made sense. McCabe, who's... They've been dithering about prosecuting him for other lies for a year and a half. It made sense for Comey to, quote, capture contemporaneous recollection, unquote, because there were millions of ways that the FBI could get follow-up questions or criticism, and Comey wanted to recollect exactly from his perspective how that had taken place. If you want to know where, why on earth these people would be later discussing wearing a wire on the president, this is their attitude. It's not a stretch to go from writing a dirty memo on the president to make him look bad if things came, push came to shove, to trying to wear a wire on him. It's the same type of seditious activity.
Comey told the OIG he began writing Memo 1 immediately following his meeting with Trump on January 6, 2017. He said he had a secure FBI laptop waiting for him in his FBI vehicle. That When he got into the vehicle, he was handed the laptop and began typing as the vehicle moved. He said he continued working on Memo 1 until he arrived at the FBI's New York field office, where Comey gave a quick download of his conversation with President-elect Trump to Rubicki, McCabe, Baker, and supervisors. Again, that's Page and Strzok. Who's, who are conveniently left out by name of the, uh, by the IG. Supervisors of the FBI's Crossfire Hurricane investigative team via secure video teleconference. Comey said he probably told the uh, participants he would send them his detailed notes of the interaction. So it goes into the discussion about him writing the emails, uh, writing the memo. Memo one was the only one of the memos, because I think there's, I forget, seven memos he wrote, on which Comey placed any classified dissemination controls or other handwritten handling markings. Comey placed an overall classification marking of secret Orcon no foreign at the top and bottom of the email. That's secret Orcon, I'm not sure what that means. No foreign means no foreign dissemination. He also placed the following classification block before the substantive text of the email, classified by director, uh, with the other declassification detail. In the email's introductory note, Comey Rosler wrote, I am not sure the proper classification, so I've chosen secret. Please let me know if it should be higher or lower than that. So he's going to share this with others, obviously. Oh, uh, Comey told the IIG that he classified Memo 1 in this way because this, is, this, is, this shows you he was spying. This is the key, folks. Pay attention. He classified Memo 1 in this way because his judgment was that the information ought to be treated like, quote, FISA-derived information or information in a counterintelligence investigation. This is a product of a spy operation. That was the basis for his classifying it. Who was the spy operation targeting? President-elect Trump. Comey was spying on Trump. There you have it. And as Byron York has pointed out, he didn't write a memo on his next communication with Trump because despite this classified briefing outrageously being uh, used to try to destroy Trump, well, actually, uh, the briefing itself was being used to destroy Trump, then it was leaked that he was briefed. Byron York writes for the Washington, Exam now, Washington Examiner, and he's reminded us that, remember, the dossier already had been kind of been out there because the Clinton camp wanted to get it into the media to destroy Trump. It's political garbage opposition research. They don't care if it's true or not. They're just trying to win. And once President Trump won, they were still trying to use it to destroy Trump, to overturn the results of the election driving a stake through the heart of our constitutional republic. They didn't care. So it gets leaked, and President Trump, President-elect Trump calls Comey and complains about it. And Comey lies to him. Well, you really can't call it a leak, because it was already out there. Well, that wasn't the point. What wasn't out there, and what had been leaked, was the fact that it was given to President Trump. That was the hook, as Byron York puts out that gave the media excuse to begin reporting on the dossier, and it led to its full publication by BuzzFeed News.
Comey didn't write a memo about his dishonest conversation with President Trump about his misleading him on the leak. So why did I get into that with you? Because everyone says we got to wait for the IG report on Pfizer to come out to see what Comey does, to see what the Justice Department does, whether it's going to be any prosecution. we got to wait for Durham to do whatever he's going to do. Look, I, 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 the detail here is enlightening. But the basic elements of Comey's criminality and the ambush interview of President Trump has been widely known. The details are just devastating, but it's, much of this has been in the public record, thanks in part to Judicial Watch. You didn't need an IG report to prosecute Comey. They refused to prosecute him. Are we going to have the same with the FISA gate? Much of the FISA gate fraudulent activity, the spying on President Trump, and FISA gate's only about the Carter Page FISA warrant applications that were targeting Trump world. That's generally out there. We don't need an IG report for prosecutions to begin or a criminal investigation to begin. But even if we did, what makes you think, given the spy operation illicitly targeting President-elect Trump, that's been ignored by the Justice Department, they're going to change their minds and say, well, well yeah, they, that, that lying about the FISA warrants was prosecutable. It'd be a miracle if that happened, I tell you. It'd be a miracle. And miracles do happen. President Trump fired James Comey. So Judicial Watch is continuing to try to get the documents because I think it's important that uh, we get this information out there because nothing will be done if the public doesn't know about what needs to be done. If we don't know the details of the criminality, nothing will be done. That's why the Pfizer, that's why the IG reports, despite being an expose and to cover up at the same time, the IG reports are, they're almost always cover-ups. They're exposés too, but there's always material they soft pedal or withhold material or characterize activity in a way that helps the agency they're supposed to be investigating, which they all work for. So uh, Barr's team dropped the ball on Spygate, folks. They've already done it. And I don't think it's going to change with any Pfizer report. I just don't see it happening. I don't see a credible, I don't even see um, strong evidence of a serious criminal investigation. The U.S. Attorney Durham, I guess he's questioning people, but I don't, I don't, you know, is it a review? Is it an administrative review? Or is it a criminal investigation? If it's a criminal investigation, I think there'd be more indicia that's of, of uh, that activity. You'd have grand juries in operation. And when you've got a grand jury investigating such a sensitive matter as this, a lot of witnesses are going to be deposed and questioned. And they're going to, they're going to talk. There's nothing prohibiting a witness from testifying and then talking about it or complaining about having to testify or having their lawyers talk about it. It would come out. I have no doubt there's a grand jury that's getting some information to uh, oftentimes, in the case of the Clinton email investigation, they used the grand jury not because they were serious about criminal investigation, 
but because they needed it as a vehicle, they needed the subpoena power to get documents they otherwise would not be able to get. I think that's what's happening again. Now, how do we change the outcome so that justice is more fully served? By Judicial Watch, frankly, and President Trump following uh, the, the, our lead in the sense of getting the documents out, going on a transparency tear. We're asking for the rest of the FISA materials. We're asking for the page struck email communications, all getting obstructed from or getting obstructed from the FBI on this. The Bruce Orr materials we've got out showing that the FISA process was fraudulent and corrupted. Nellie Orr, Fusion GPS, having easy access to the Justice Department. You wouldn't believe what was going on. Well, you would believe it. But Judicial Watch has gotten the material out. So we already know there's enough evidence of criminal activity warrant prosecutions. But it isn't happening yet. So I, I know it may be upsetting to you to hear that. But trust Judicial Watch to do what we are able to do. Because no one else is doing anything about it. I'm not saying no one in the Justice Department is interested in trying to get justice. But, uh, you know, as I was on, I was on Lou Dobbs uh, this week. Uh, Lou Dobbs is in Washington, D.C., and he's normally in New York, so I never get to see him. So it was good to be with him in person in the studio. And I made the point that Attorney General Barr, I suspect, is a lot like President Trump. He's, his, his instincts are right. He wants to do the right thing. But he's surrounded by a thousand lawyers, all kind of like James Comey, who on the best of days are anti-conservative uh, on pretty much every other day. They're viciously anti-Trump. They're smart, but intellectually dishonest, coming up with a thousand reasons not to do what needs to be done to drain the swamp and to hold accountable what needs to be held accountable, uh, hold accountable those who need to be held accountable here. Hillary Clinton's never been questioned on, on this issue. She hired Fusion GPS. Her lawyers were talking to the FBI about all of this. No one's asked her any questions about it. Barack Obama, I know that's a more sensitive topic because he is the president of the United States or was the president of the United States. So the ability of the Justice Department to question him about his management of intelligence activities is a little more limited, but it's not prohibited from him having to answer questions or being asked questions and let him object based on privileges. That, ain't been, that hasn't been done. And uh, it's important that it be done because it's, it's crucial that we don't allow these government deep staters. And it's not just Democrats. You had John McCain who was shopping around the dossier. We proved that. who decide they know better than you who should be president. Like I said, they want to drive a stake through the heart of our constitutional republic. That if their president is elected they don't like, or there's a candidate that's running for president that they do like, they will put their thumb on the scale and upend your right to vote and the decisions of tens of millions of Americans as to who to put in office. And it's continuing. The Democrats are not backing off impeachment, which is the next phase of the coup. 
the report is that uh, supposed, um, and this is to me uh, pretext uh, reporting, meaning that these are friendly reporters dutifully uh, uh, printing out what their Democratic colleagues are telling them to write, that they're getting a lot of pressure from folks at home during the 46-day recess they've been on. What did you do the last 46 days? You've been on vacation for 46 days? Well, Congress has been. And they're going to come back saying that the people want impeachment and they're going to intensify the impeachment push. Despite their party's involvement in the worst criminal conspiracy in American history here in Washington, D.C., in terms of politics. Unbelievable. And it's only Judicial Watch that's doing the basic oversight. The FBI 302s documenting Bruce Orr came out thanks to Judicial Watch. The FISA warrant applications, thanks to Judicial Watch. The documented relationship between the FBI and Christopher Steele, Hillary Clinton's uh, spy, thanks to Judicial Watch. State Department documents showing that they were involved in pushing this Russiagate smear targeting President Trump in an effort to destroy him, thanks to Judicial Watch. All of this thanks to Judicial Watch. So don't despair. Judicial Watch is here, and we'll do work. We'll keep on working uh, to uphold the rule of law. And um, if the agencies don't want to do it, it's unfortunately not much of a surprise. But at least there's a way of getting some accountability by getting the truth out about what happened. And uh, without that basic foundation out there, nothing will ever be done. So if you want prosecutions, you're going to want Judicial Watch to succeed because if left to their own devices, you'll never know anything and they'll never tell you what they're not prosecuting. But thanks to Judicial Watch's work, you'll know what they're not prosecuting and perhaps the pressure from knowing, uh, the pressure from that outrage will spur appropriate prosecutions under the law. Uh, before I go, I have another quick uh, story to talk to you about. Uh, it tells you that, it talks about the, the doubles, uh, the, uh, the hypocritical nature of the national media. There's been these terrible scandals out in Virginia with the leadership of the governor's office. I think it's the lieutenant governor, the state attorney general, and the lieutenant governor all caught in separate scandals. And the lieutenant governor is Justin Fairfax. He was an up-and-comer. He was likely to be the next governor of Virginia. He was accused of uh, sexual assault by two women. February 2019, two women accused him of sexual assault and rape. Dr. Vanessa Tyson, a professor at Scripps College, accused Fairfax of sexually assaulting her in a, at the 2004 Democratic National Convention in Boston, and Meredith Watson accused Fairfax of raping her while attending Duke University with him in 2000. After the women came forward, Fairfax's uh, policy director, Adelaide McClure resigned and attacked Fairfax. And Fairfax himself stepped down from his position at the international law firm of Morrison and Forrester. So um, I don't know if these allegations are true or not. Uh, but they're substantial enough to cause discord in his office and to cause Fairfax to step back from a significant uh, position he arguably wouldn't have had to if there wasn't something substantive to it. But I suspect there may be something more substantive about this, these allegations because of the response of his office 
to a Judicial Watch FOIA request. So Judicial Watch does what we do is we filed a FOIA request with uh, Lieutenant Governor Fairfax's office for documents about these issues. And we got back a response, we can't have anything because they're either working papers or personnel records exempt from disclosure. Now, ordinarily, when you ask for documents from a government agency, as I was saying earlier, they sometimes do withhold documents in whole or in part based on various exemptions. Rarely do they give you a categorical no. One of these rare exceptions is with Lieutenant Governor Fairfax, who says that we can't, want, can't get one document from his office about his response to these rape allegations. Boy, doesn't that speak volumes? So we're now going to be in court fighting Lieutenant Governor Fairfax's office about whether he can hold every document that he has on these rape allegations from Judicial Watch. And um, now compare and contrast if this was a conservative governor or a lieutenant governor. I mean, the governor, I, we got FOIAs on that that you'll be, uh, we got more documents on that actually coming out that you'd be interested in. I'll talk about that next week. That's what we're doing. So. Uh, this is why I love Judicial Watch. We got the Clinton email going on, scandal uh, investigation going on, uh, doing all the heavy lifting on that, doing all the heavy lifting on Russiagate, doing this basic investigative work of a big scandal that's received national headlines in Virginia. We have our election integrity project going on in California that resulted in this massive victory Los Angeles County removing one and a half million names potentially over the next several years. We have lawsuits over sanctuary policies in California. Judicial Watch is all over and we're doing the work the government, well actually we don't expect the government to do the work because it really can't investigate itself in many respects. So it's up to independent groups like Judicial Watch and independent citizens who support Judicial Watch do this work. And I have to say, before I close, we have this precious, precious freedom in our government, in this country. The ability to petition our government, to have equal status with government agencies and federal court. I mean, we're in court against the State Department, the Justice Department, the IRS, you name it. But we're on equal footing because of our wonderful judicial system, our wonderful system of law here in the United States. It is not perfect, I understand. But there's no other country in the world where we have the ability to hold the government to account the way we do here in the United States. And while we have that precious right, which is always under constant assault and threat, we need to exercise it. And Judicial Watch is number one in exercising that precious right we have to make sure our government is accountable to the rule of law. And we only do it with your support. So those of you who are supporting us, thank you. And I encourage the rest of you to begin supporting us as soon as you're able. Thank you, have a great week, and I'll see you next time here on the Judicial Watch Update. You have just listened to Tom Fitton's weekly update on JW TalkNet. Remember to subscribe and donate at judicialwatch.org slash donate.